Welcome to another edition of Global Investment Leaders. Well, Chaz, great to be back with you again for another installment of Global Investment Leaders, where you and I kind of sit around the fire and, and have a chat about what we're seeing. I hope you're doing well as we wind down towards the holidays. Have you gotten all your holiday shopping done? I would say not. You would say uh, not. All right. Well, we still have a little bit of time. <laughs> Are you and uh, how's that Christmas list? Do you, is there anything special that you're looking for this year? Uh, peace. I and uh, some family time. I was thinking about what I want and world peace sounds trite, but I think right now we could use some of that. And, um, you know, the family being the most important thing, that's definitely a good thing to focus on here as we wind down. Um, yep. And in the spirit of reflection, so 2023 marks our fifth year with Markel and the relationship that we have with them as our permanent capital provider and and majority owner. And as, as I think about it, we have three permanent investments now. We have a legacy PE portfolio that started with eight companies when we partnered with Markel and is down to three. Uh, and so we're really making that transition towards permanent capital. And I'm curious, you originally made the partnership with Markel, and I know you worked hard to find a good partner and found Markel and and structured that arrangement. So do you, what are your reflections on the Markel relationship and how things stand five years in? I wish I would have met them earlier. Hmm. <laughs> now, I, I think that's a, an easy soundbite, but honestly, Brad, as you know, they have been so refreshing to work with on every level. They are just completely honorable. I feel very aligned with them. Uh, I think the board functions very smoothly. Um, two of them and me, and we are all communicating so closely that I just always feel like we're in lockstep on potential investments. So yeah, I, I wish we'd met them a lot sooner in life because I think the the permanent capital game as Markel plays it is the best one out there that I've seen. And you and I both have um, watched a lot of quote permanent capital businesses been launched and participate in our industry and Look, there, many of them are just different flavors of ice cream. There are public companies, there are long-dated private equity funds, and then there is Rosemont, um, which has no incentive or initiative to ever look for the exits. It's not to say that someday an exit might not happen, but it just feels so much better. And I think it feels a lot better to our partners and would-be partners to be able to have a discussion with no expectation of another transaction. I think in some respects and for some firms that it's actually a positive to try to get another bite of the apple. I think for the kinds of people that we partner with, I think they view that kind of long-term quiet sustainability as paramount. One aspect that has struck me is the collaborative nature of the relationship. And I think you mentioned the word alignment. And I, I really feel that in the conversations and discussions and debates that we have around capital allocation and, and all the things that go with that. Um, I've spoken to some peers in the industry, and, and we certainly know of some situations where there are capital partners that are not aligned and have 
expectations for certain events and uh, pace of activity. And if that isn't met, it often leads to friction and some relationships have fallen apart. And I've never felt that with Markel. They've always been very patient. Uh, I think I think we're rowing in the same direction in terms of what we're trying to accomplish. And they've really given us a good amount of autonomy while being you know, very helpful standing in the wings. And, and I think that matters a lot. One thing I've noticed is that our most recent conversations with would-be partners, uh, one of which has materialized and the other is in process, both have wanted to get to know Markel pretty yes. well. And in our early days, you know, I think people either weren't aware of who Markel was or they just looked at them as a, a, a pass through source of capital for their strategies and, and things like that. And now I feel like our partners are starting to get a really good sense for who they are and how they operate. And we have some real life investments that can illustrate that. I actually think it's important and it's very telling. And it really leads into, Brad, something that I think became more evident to us throughout the year, which is, you know, we've never been a rapid investor. <clears throat> Going back to the start of Rosemont in 2000, one of the earliest focused minority investors in asset and wealth management. Overall, we've made about 30 investments in 23 years. That's hardly a barn burner pace. And I don't know that that pace would increase. That pace might get slower. Because for us, the compass has really changed. You know, for 17 years of raising private equity funds, you have to be aware of the fuse that is lit with that final close. And you've got five or somewhat more years to put that money to work. And now we have an indefinite time frame. And we have partners who are encouraging us in fact, just the opposite, Brad, of what you were just inferring, Markel is encouraging us to take every pitch that we don't think is down the middle with a superb potential partner. So I do think what you're getting to, Brad, is um, what we've probably noticed the environment, which is motive and agenda. And I think this year we saw motive and agenda of both potential investments and the huge buyer crowd become more diverse and more apparent. Yeah. Wouldn't you say? I would. I, I agree with that. I've been thinking about our ecosystem and, and where we fit in it and the role that we play in the industry. And it's interesting that, you know, in the media, there's such a focus on volume and valuation, how many deals are getting done and at what valuations. And it's almost seen as, as, you know, the industry is thriving or failing based on those numbers. And it really, in my mind, misses the point. And, and while that's good for some, certainly, you know, deals being done and interest in the space and capital flowing into the space, they're all good signs for the health of the industry. If it weren't a healthy industry, you wouldn't see that level of interest. Um, but on the other hand, is it really about just combining and scaling and growing and transacting or are there other things that are important and and it, the, the answer really there isn't a right or wrong answer for some right that is important and i think it's important for the industry but on the flip side there's also a very clear role for those who would be a little bit uh different in their approach and, and i think we're carving out a pretty nice niche there 
Yeah, I think uh, by contrast, what I would say is of the 30 investments we've made, I'd actually struggle to think of one that was M&A driven. I, I don't know that we've made a single investment in our history where M&A was any focus of growth. In fact, I think we were cautioned by those that we partnered with that they did not want to be pressed with any uh, needed acquisitions. Now, to what you referred earlier about the market and what's good for the industry and, and all the activity we're seeing, there's no doubt that the wealth management market is, is a frenzy. And that's, I think, a large part of your point in terms of the vast number of buyers and agendas. And it's really becoming quite clear um, that motives and or at least outcomes can change when you see things like focus going private with Clayton Dublier and Rice. You see the CI minority sale and rebrand to Corient. Um, you see what uh, creative planning has done with United Capital. Um by way of Goldman. So there's a lot of turnover and movement over, say, rolling five and 10 year periods. And I think the point that you were getting at that we both believe strongly, Brad, is that just measuring success, yes, it's exciting to announce deals. We like to do it. Um, it's, a, it's a wedding in effect, but it's much more relevant and um, satisfying to have a 5, 10, 15-year investment that has been productive for both parties. There's equilibrium of result. I think that's the other thing that you kind of pointed out a few minutes ago, is that when all of the price-driven processes make it clear that none of the decision up front is being made on the basis of a relationship. And you and I, you know, I mean, I determined this a while ago and it's just become stronger with you and with Markel. We don't, we can't even figure out whether or not somebody might be a great partner for us. And we wouldn't think they could figure us out for themselves if we don't spend a lot of time together personally, not by Zoom or by Teams, but numerous in-person meetings in different settings and meeting most, if not all, of their firm and understanding exactly what it is that drives them, what motivates them, and how we're going to be able to help. Because that's obviously, at the end of the day, you can be the nicest guys in the world, but if you can't figure out how to be extremely helpful, um, you know, our value is not going to last. So I think there's a lot going on. I mean, the institutional marketplace, as you know, Brad, has almost been, um, almost been bereft of transaction. There's almost kind of no active marketplace for the institutional boutique product world. And that's something that you cut your teeth in. And most of Rosemont's uh, 30 investments have been in institutional product firms. What do you think is going on there? Well, certainly on the traditional side, there's been a dearth of activity and, and it's been tough. The environment that we've been in has seen a lot of asset flight out of certain asset classes. And I think there's potentially a, less of an appetite to try to grow a firm, you know, lock arms with some partners and, and grow a firm. It's tough out there. And distribution and growth seem to be the tip of the spear in terms of strategy. And it's really tough to do that on your own. So we see, I think, some uh, looking around and firms trying to figure out how they can solve for that. Uh, but 
it's kind of a catch-22. So if your product isn't demand and you need help growing, those who would be the growers and could help with that aren't necessarily interested. So there's a little bit of a standoff in the market on that respect. On the, on the alternative side, there's a ton of activity and, and has been. There's been a race to gobble up new capabilities for players who have been strong in the traditional world and trying to add an alternatives function um, to expand their footprint because that's where the demand has been. I, I think that will come around. I mean, we're already starting to see some of the tectonic plates shift a little bit with, you know, rates potentially leveling off and um, uh, asset movement shifting. So we could see some resurgence in some of those asset classes. And in some cases we have, we've seen traditional asset managers that have received new mandates. I mean, large cap has long been, large cap equity in the US has long been a source of funds for a lot of other asset classes and good ideas. And, and there have actually been some searches in that space. So it could come around. But for now, wealth management alternatives have been the, the hot spots. You used an, an interesting phrase, equilibrium of result. And I, I do want to circle back to that because I think that is a really, really important uh, angle on the discussion. And so often, uh, I think there's a role in the industry for some of the consolidators and big players. Just like we see in the traditional asset management space, you know, your BlackRocks and your Vanguards and I mean, big firms have a role in the industry that's very important. Uh, there's also a role for smaller players and specialists. And when you focus on just piecing things together for size, I don't, I don't know as that is ideal. I think the smaller players um, maybe sell on the idea of a good valuation and end up being unhappy over time as the deals start to mature and things start to move along. They may, they may not, but I, I think we've seen enough transactions over the past half dozen years that are starting to mature and industry conditions are starting to change. It'll be interesting to see whether there was equilibrium at the outset or whether it was one-sided and whether we start to see some dislocation as a result of the maturation and the variance in outcomes. It's going to be interesting to see. Yeah. That yes. I think it depends though who you talk to. I think that the sellers of those businesses and those that got paid, whether they were founders, um, management and or other owners um, that were bought out, they might have been very happy depending on the structure of the deal. I do think that one aspect of the uh, tightness and uh, challenge of the rates and financial markets has meant more longer tail deals and more consideration placed on either deferred or earnout structures as opposed to entirely cash at close. So that would be a factor. But yeah, I think that it's it's no secret that, and, and that's I think what Brad, what you and I sometimes smile at, which is what is what is everybody trying to accomplish? But we're very clear. We'd like to make a mid-teens IRR over time. Versus, if you were to compare that to a private equity purchase that might be at fifteen times run rate EBITDA or greater that's trying to make a 20% plus IRR in five or six or seven years and is using 
two, three, four turns of leverage and doesn't have the markets at their back, that's going to be a tough outcome, isn't it? It is, although to your point, it depends who you ask and yeah. what they're trying to accomplish. You and I often discuss the definition of success. And I think it really, you know, what timeline are you talking about? What metrics are you talking about? Whose interests are you talking about? And I think that's something that a lot of people make assumptions about and oversimplify. Well, I actually want to take it away from metrics and away from the financial aspect of success, because I think when you look at the longer tailed partnerships and the ones where a significant number of the employees or partners, certainly, uh, of the acquired business are still there, are still motivated. Um, the business is growing, perhaps not quickly, but I think there's a whole discussion around how comfortable, how rewarding, how helpful and stimulating is the deal. That sounds very soft and very qualitative, but you and I know from doing what we do that we spend an inordinate amount of time talking to our partners about a wide variety of things from helping them hire key people to thinking through the competition, how to pitch uh, and or present, whether it's to manager research, an intermediary, direct to an allocator, how can we avail them of our network? Um, how can we help them think through uh, sales and marketing activities or tools or resources that they're not using? Could they talk to CFOs, COOs, other functional heads of businesses that we either we've partnered with or whom we know well um, that they would benefit from? This is all part of a long-term growing value. And if you can deliver that, I think that's kind of the unspoken win that's not measurable by dollars and cents. I think for those for whom that matters, I think it's a great fit partnership. And I think we've done a good job with many of those aspects over time. Although I think you and I both think that we haven't done enough and that we always need to do more. And that's Absolutely. a big part of our MO. But I think the takeaway that I get from your comments is that it's really important to know your partner because for some that is very important. And so the measure of success would be, well, those were our expectations and how did that go? Did Rosemont deliver value over time? You know, is the outcome what we both envisioned or better? And, you know, are we both happy with that and happy that we got together? Very different than somebody who wants to cash out or who, you know, is has wholly different ambitions. And there are plenty out there that have a different agenda and that's great. And that's really important for both buyers and sellers, would-be partners to understand the motivations and aspirations and, and, and typical day-to-day -day practices of who they're partnering with. We've found that's really, really hard to do in a meeting or a Zoom uh, or yeah. looking at a deck. And it's really important to get to know people. And when people get to know us, 
then we can determine if that if that's a good fit and, and that works out. But but those are needles and haystacks. It takes yeah. work. Well, there's no doubt. And you just look at our pace um, and it's not because we haven't been trying. I mean, we've been basically completely focused on one industry and it's several sub-segments for 24 years practically. Um, so I think the best example might be, Brad, of the investment that we're about to make. So you know, this next <clears throat> partnership, which we hope will close in the first quarter, is a five to ten billion dollar wealth management uh, business. Intense investors and stewards. They're basically OCIOs for their families. And how long's it been? I mean, I've been calling uh, on them and getting to know them for over ten years. And I think one of the things that we love, and you referenced it earlier, Brad, is that it was equally important to them to spend a lot of time with us, ask us all kinds of questions really figure out what we might be like in tough situations where we might not agree. Didn't we really have something else up our sleeve that we were trying to accomplish? Um, I, in some respects, you'd say, well, of course, it shouldn't take that long. And most of the investment we've made over time haven't taken that long. But I think that is the benefit of being a specialist, uh, in my case, for almost 40 years, in your case, over 25 years is that you tend to know a lot of folks in the industry and you cross paths with them at different points in your and their life cycle. I think that's really fascinating to me is that I am in the last year meeting people that I first spoke with 30 years ago. And then maybe I spoke with them 20 years ago. And then maybe it was two years ago through a new in each case, maybe through a new means, and they evolved or changed firms. And so I, I think that goes to something that you might have been inferring a minute ago, Brad, and that is, for better or worse, I think we just believe that there's a certain karma in the industry and it just makes sense. And I know a number of our competitors would agree with this statement. It just makes sense to try to spread um, thoughts share intelligence, and be open in discussing you know, what, what everybody is doing and what people are achieving. Obviously, being careful not to overly share and, and always be discreet. That is critical. We, we, we can't kind of do what we do without complete discretion. But I just think that that notion of being more open and trying to help people, you have no idea how it's going to come back. But I think in your and my career, many times it has come back, maybe after a little while, maybe after years. And I, so I think that's also kind of a hallmark of how Rosemont wants to operate. I agree. And I think that underscores the point on patience and appropriate partnerships. It's really meeting people where they are. Um, you know, the, the pending investment that you've been speaking with for 10 years and 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 one of our recent ones it, where, you know, there was a long, long conversation. And the fact is they weren't, they weren't ready. And so we built the relationship and built some trust and knowledge over time. And when they were ready, we, we were there. And, you know, sometimes it, they partner with us. Sometimes they don't as their needs change. I, I think, I think about it in terms of Rosemont's future. We're going to be doing this for a very long time. We have a very long horizon and a lot of the, 
networking and help that we are providing for people today, who knows what ultimately that becomes. You said karma. I, you know, the more people that know what we do and the more that we know what people are doing, the more opportunities to to find that that fit and that solution over time. Maybe it happens, maybe it doesn't, and that's okay. And by the way, I'm next year will be my 30 years in the industry. So you're gonna oh, Okay. I didn't want to age you prematurely, but thank you for uh, taking care of that reminding me of your, <laughs> your your gravitas and uh um, no, it's, uh, I think this year it became clear to us the characteristics and the personalities, I'd say those might be the two best descriptions of the f kinds of folks that might make sense for us and we for them and vice versa. So I think the distilling things are things like depth. I mean, you and I talk about these characteristics all the time. Um, do they actually have great bench strength? Do they have depth at the senior level? Do they have depth across the company? Or is it more of a Hollywood set? I think, unfortunately, in, in many cases, it is the latter. Um, are they really interested in a partner, evidenced by what we just talked about in really willing to put in the time to have a number of personal meetings and cover everything that needs to be covered um, and, and not feel like we've got to rush into it and we've got a fuse lit? Uh, or is it really more financier and, and we need to hit a bid? Um, and I would say a third thing is what do they want out of us and can we provide it? And I think you and I are very quick to realize when somebody wants something that we can't provide, we'd rather refer them elsewhere and suggest that this is clearly not a fit. Let's just stay friends. So I think that's also been important to recognize the value that we provide versus what we don't. Um, because there are lots of types of value. And I referenced one earlier, which is there clearly are a bunch of firms, um, majority and minority buyers, who have proved themselves very capable of acquiring other business. It could be small, it could be large, it could be complementary, it could be geographic. Um, but I would say that M&A, chassis, and the ability to just add one more company after another. I just don't think it's ever going to be something for us, but I think for many folks that that's clearly been a great value added. So distilling things like that early on, and sometimes you can't know that in a first meeting or two. Um, so, Well, and I would dare say that we've referred people to others far more often than we've partnered with folks. I mean, 30, tra 30 transactions oh. in 20, oh. or not, not transactions per se, but investments and partnerships in 20 some odd years, three in the last five years or, or longer. Um, I think we've connected more folks with others because gauging that fit doesn't just mean finding something for yourself, but also helping people find what's right for them. It's interesting. So we're talking a lot about fit and finding mutual interest and alignment. And I think a lot of our partnerships tend to be, we used the word collaborative earlier with Markel. I think that's how we view our partnerships with our, our, our investments. Um, we focus a lot on the day-to-day -day strategic discussions, pick up the phone, send an email, building relationships and having that comfort and familiarity. But where these relationships sometimes hit the road 
is in governance. And that's always a sensitive topic when there are external shareholders or, or could be external shareholders involved. And, and how do you take that, that friendly cooperative relationship, but also put in you know, representative governance in a way that works for both sides? So you, what are your thoughts on governance in this context? Well, you've, you've hit a nerve that is central to Rosemont's investment thesis and who we are. And that is something that anybody who we spend time with gets to know, I think, pretty quickly. And so I would start with the ownership of the company. As you well know, Brad, going back to the beginning, Rosemont wanted to support majority management-owned companies. And so your comment earlier about size is not so much that I don't, I think I'm relatively agnostic. We don't really think of size per se in its own vacuum, we think of the relevance of a business um, that has little or no employee ownership and how those decisions are being made by those who do own the business. And as you well know, going back through your career, especially Brad, through your time running manager research at SCI, you saw a lot of outside owners, a lot of financial institutions, and you met with a lot of investment teams that were actually very happy and motivated enough to uh, continue on with their jobs uh, and perhaps end their careers at places like this. But the difference in Rosemont's thinking uh, on this point is that we feel that the employee-owned business and being able to make decisions directly with the leaders of the firm who have only the best interests of their clients and their employees at heart and none other is critical. And that's what we're most comfortable with. And that's in part why we have always shied away from syndicate deals. You're getting in bed with other uh, investors, which can be done. There's, there's certainly a, a, a very successful world of it. It just isn't right for us because we wouldn't feel that we could have that direct and unfettered relationship with management. We love management being able to make their decisions, drive their futures. Um, and that's basically then goes to the heart of how our, quote, governance works, as you and I have talked with partners and prospective partners often. Um, we don't want to run your business. If you would need us to run your business in any way, that would be a big negative and we're probably not right. Um, we'd like to have minority investor protections that we think are reasonable so that the business that we invested in within some guardrails is the business that uh, we remain invested in. And that if you want to make substantial changes, that's fine. But you know, we really need to weigh in on that. It is worth pointing out to that point, Brad, that in the 30 investments, we barely had a difficult conversation about governance in 23 years and 30 investments. So that probably speaks to the kind of light touch that we apply to this, but that is absolutely in contrast, not to other owners that might not be as friendly or you know, have great intentions. It's just that when you bring other parties to the table, financial institutions, 
private equity firms, um, other money management firms that have other agenda items or, or their agenda changes over time. It, you're going to be dealing with um, turn forks in the road and you're going to have to make decisions about whether or not it still is as aligning and uh, makes as much sense as it did when you first partnered with that firm. So I think that maybe just distills what we're looking for is never, ever trying to project any other agenda upon a partner, any other outcome, any other action other than what they have told us they want to do and they're in business to do. And what they really want is they just want us to help them with their agenda and not something else. Well, I think that's symbolic of how we approach our relationships in that it's not about control. It's not about you know being higher in a capital stack. It's, it's working through things together side by side. And I, I would dare say there have been times when being a minority shareholder and only having minority protections and not having governance control has been a liability when when things have been difficult. But but that's the nature of what we do is is just have conversations and try to work through things and not tell people what they have to do. And I think our partners appreciate that. Well, I think it's a reason that we are partners and it's not lost on you or me that that's exactly the way Markel treats us. Right. And I think Markel has made it a point to be that just quiet, supportive, aligned partner and parent that is not looking to run any of its businesses. It's basically looking to do a lot of the same things we are with our firms. And I think that's what they feel will make for the most successful long-term partnerships. And let's face it, you know, there are not that many firms in this industry, Brad, and it actually would be a wonderful research project to look out over time at how many 15, 20, 25 year stories there are of reasonably successful firms that have managed through their own ownership transitions and not really hit any speed bumps and have not had uh, significant challenges and problems that maybe they wish they'd handled differently today. You and I know from all of the conversations that we have with folks that many people, in fact, do wish that they'd taken uh, door number three instead of door number two. I think that maybe is something that we're trying hard to to work against, that they never, ever wish that they'd done something else than us. I think you described it well to somebody a few years ago as the most, the best way of figuring out whether or not this has really worked is for our partners to say five, eight, 12 years from now, I'm really glad we did this. So we got to keep working at it. And, and that might, again, seem a bit trite, but it's it's not imposing ourselves. It's just being able to constantly figure out how to be helpful and what they want to do, just as Markel does. So in some respects, this sounds, Brad, like an awfully simple playbook, but as evidenced by the fact that we make so few investments uh, and that we're so deliberate, it, it clearly is not. <laughs> well... I, I will keep it simple because the phrase that comes to mind is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I think that's how we think about our partners. That's how we think about Markel. And, and, and that seems to be a pretty good principle to go by, especially heading into the holidays and 
And I know there's shopping to be done and there's work to be done in the meantime, so maybe we should wrap this up. Um, but good, good going through some of these topics. I think it's always good to step back and reflect where we are, where we hope we'd be, where we're going. I think we have some exciting things coming up next year, 2024, should hopefully get off to a good start. You referenced a pending investment and we have other things well, going on. Well, in addition to our pending investment, we would be remiss if we didn't mention our new pending employee, Chris Banholzer, who's going to be joining us in a few weeks. Really looking forward to having Chris on board. There's going to be plenty to do in 2024 and beyond. So I think we're thankful for finding him. Uh, we're thankful for the four of us, you, Melinda, Chris, and me, for our partnership with Markel for our relationships since we became permanent capital providers with Markel, um, with 1607, Veris, and Landmark. Um, I think they all have bright futures and we're very enthusiastic, looking forward to the new year with them. I'm excited. I've never felt better about where we are and I'm really looking forward to swinging into next year with some momentum. So thanks for the conversation, Chaz, always good. Appreciate it, Brad. Now get out and get your shopping finished. Oh. Take care.